Hello! Today we've got a guest. Jarrell Wade came on during the baby break about a week after my little guy was born to talk about his vast experience starting and advising businesses. The talk was a blast. We get into how to compete against giants by understanding their incentives, the cold start problem, how to stack your risk early, both business risk and personal risk, and establishing floors and ceilings. One note before we jump in, since recording this, Jarrell left his role at Phoenix, moving up to become an advisor for the company. He now spends his time writing about fintech and advising startups at Batch Processing. You can read all his content, including a recent piece about Stripe's struggles that's gone a bit viral at batchprocessing.co. Hope you enjoyed the talk as much as I did. And now let's get to Jarrell. Today, we are going to dig into how to identify businesses worth starting, how to get initial momentum in the earliest stages of growth. The hope is to talk through zero to one. I'm joined today by Jarrell Wade, who's done a ton of zero to one. He is currently the chief growth officer at Phoenix and previously ran product partnerships at Pinterest, was the head of growth for Tilt Pro, a company that was acquired by Airbnb, and was a co-founder of Balance, a payments API that went through Y Combinator, raised money from investors like Andreessen Horowitz, and was eventually acquired by Stripe. He is an investor and an advisor, and that is the way that we know each other, actually. We're both advising a company called Between, that is Fixing Gynecology. Between.health is worth checking out if your ears perked up when you heard about fixing gynecology. I realized that after those advisory calls, I had notebooks full of stuff that Jarreau had said, and it probably made sense to just have him on the pod during the baby break. So Jarreau, welcome and thank you so much for the time. Thank you for having me. Awesome. Um, so let's jump into it quickly. Um, start by telling me a little bit about your background, what you enjoy, what you're good at, that sort of thing. And then we'll jump into where you're at now and then dig a little deeper into some of the earlier startups. Sure. Uh, in, terms of, in terms of what I enjoy, per personally or professionally, I could talk about soccer, coffee, or uh, payments, infrastructure, and marketing and growth if you want. But we can go whatever direction. I kind of like all of those. Let's start with uh, the top personal and then the top professional. Top personal. I'm I'm gonna name, name soccer. It was my first love. I've been nice. playing since I was five. And we're obviously just off the pretty amazing World Cup that just happened. So I'm uh, still buzzing from that. Yeah. Uh, professionally, I've somehow found a love for payments, uh, specifically <laughs> the nitty gritty of payments infrastructure. So not even consumer facing apps, but the the stuff behind many of the apps that, that people have used. Um, mostly been in growth roles there. My original background coming out of college was uh, electrical engineering. I thought I was going to do something like design electronics and sound equipment. My dad is a musician and ran a sound production company. Oh, wow. Um, so <clears throat> I was tinkering around, tinkering around with things like that from a young age, but eventually found my way into software and then into kind of selling and helping build APIs and then eventually marketing and doing more abstract things like that. So now my current role, I lead uh, growth, which is a combination of product strategy um, communications, PR, marketing, et cetera. Very cool. Um, we always talk about Venn diagrams, about how the output of someone is culmination of all of the unique circles that make up their Venn diagram. And I'm not sure if there's a better one. You've got like the engineering stuff, you've got product stuff, fintech knowledge, and then growth, which is like the big challenge. So um, very, very cool. Um, and then just tell me about Phoenix, where you're at now, what you all do. Yeah, Phoenix is a payments infrastructure company. So we've been around since 2016 in earnest. We move billions of dollars every year 
for platforms specifically. So those are companies doing uh, money movement between, uh, say, a buyer and a seller. So it could be a restaurant management company that is going to take cards or uh, different point of sale payment options and then run that through a full suite, everything that does ticketing, tipping, scheduling, point of sale. Um, that's what this, our customer provides. We provide the payments infrastructure that powers them. And then on the back end, they do reconciliation and payouts to those merchants, those restaurants through our software as well. So like I said, we're the, the company behind the company that powers a lot of um, payments for you know, tens of thousands of, of merchants on Main Street. We power gyms, uh, donations for churches, things like that. Amazing. So you're the electricity for these people, basically. Exactly. Exactly. Very, very cool. Um, awesome. So I think some of that will come up as we talk through some stuff you've done in the past. Um, for our audience, uh, I think we mentioned this before jumping on, but our people are starting businesses. They are super early stage. A lot of them still have their jobs. Um, they are testing out ideas. They are building their pre-products. They a lot of times don't have a full team yet. They are oftentimes pre-funding. We've got a lot of people who are further along, but I think for that core customer, core listener of ours, the early stuff, particularly the early stuff that you did at Balanced when you were sort of like on the ground floor figuring out how to build this thing will be really, really useful. So I want to jump in a little bit of a time machine here and talk back through Balanced. Um, so let's start with the idea for this. Uh, where did the idea come from? And then maybe a touch about like the macro environment. What else was going on at the time that led you yep. to think the idea could work? So uh, I, I have to mention my co-founder and CEO, Mattin Tamizi. He's the one who brought me into that company. And he and I, along with our, our other co-founder and CTO, Mahmoud Obligator, uh, we were all working at a company called Milo.com. Milo was bought by eBay in 2010. And so we were doing the classic Palo Alto, Silicon Valley thing. We were living together. We were working together at an early stage startup. And you have to keep in mind, this was 2009, 2010. So the e-commerce and fintech landscape was very, very different than it is today. So Milo, not to go into too much detail there, but we were an e-commerce company that was kind of the reverse of Amazon. Instead of getting things sent to you, we showed you where things were online. Uh, like, so you could not online, I'm sorry, in person. So you could go to a store and buy it. So we were building uh, real-time inventory systems. Um, Mateen was uh, one of the early employees after me, and he had left Milo early because he was focused on something that he described as infrastructure. He wanted to do something that was as fundamental as electricity, as you mentioned, or sanitation. Uh, he thought these were the things that were going to move the world forward. And he stumbled into fintech. Uh, the original idea was actually a P2P app, more similar to Venmo or Cash App. Hmm. Uh, but again, at the time, Venmo was somewhat fledgling. It was only a few years old and it did not have the you know tens of millions of users it has now. So Mahmood and I left Milo after the acquisition by eBay and we went to start on it full time. Uh, and the early idea was essentially the scrappy like we were scraping websites to try to reverse engineer uh, mobile apps from banks so we could move money real time. And uh, we had enough of an inkling there that there were a couple problems that were being under kind of recognized. The first one was uh, fast funds movement. So I, I'll never forget, Mattin was doing a demo to an investor and he did a live demo that where we sent $20 to his bank account <laughs> in real time for free. And it wasn't scalable yet, but we were trying to show like, hey, this is amazing. Like 
we, you just got 20 bucks in your bank account for free. And the investor was like, so what? <laughs> we're like, really, like, you don't have to wait for the money. He's like, yeah, but I have other money. I can wait for this. And we realized, and you have to keep in mind, Matthew and Mahmoud were immigrants. Their, their families came to the U.S. Uh, from Egypt and Iran. You know, I came from a low-income background. We were, we were grown up in these uh, communities where real-time access to cash, like my dad being a bartender, getting cash that night was meaningful. Mm. Uh, an investor with millions of dollars in their bank account is not the same thing. That was one of the early things that kind of stuck in our mind. Um, and the other thing was that it was damn hard to build all of the infrastructure that you needed to do a peer-to-peer money movement app. So whether that's a marketplace, which we're taking off at the time uh, with Uber, Airbnb, starting Etsy, et cetera, uh, or if it was uh, an app like Venmo or the one we were building er earlier on called PoundPay. So those are some of the insights that we had. Um, And I think you're asking like where the idea came from. It was seeing just how difficult it was to one, get adoption on the peer-to-peer app side. That really is capturing lightning in a bottle. Um, one of the early things I did for, for matching before I even joined uh, Balance full time was I would sell stuff on Craigslist in Palo Alto, uh, test out the dynamic and the user flow of the PoundPay app. Hmm. Um, and I can go into stories there, but we were, we were trying to determine if this was actually something people would use. And there was a huge trust barrier. Um, so I wouldn't say that we shied away from the hard problem there, but we realized that in Y Combinator, there were tons of other companies building these marketplaces. We were lucky enough to meet Brian Chesky, the CEO of Airbnb, who eventually invested in Balance. Um, he obviously was scaling his company and, and noted that something like this payments infrastructure for marketplaces would have been useful. And so we pivoted the company uh, soon after getting into Airbnb to really go after that in earnest. Hmm. Uh, and the other thing that was clear to us was we always kept an eye on this first insight of like the, the instant money movement. It wasn't possible from day one, but we pushed the envelope at every step we could to try to make that a reality, uh, taking into account compliance and fraud and all those things. But those were some of the first insights that we started pursuing um, and it eventually led to, to balanced. Very cool. I have three questions about that. Um, the first is on feedback from people like investors or feedback from anyone that you're you know, pitching an idea to who you've rightly or wrongly put on a pedestal and said, like, this is someone who knows what they're talking about. And for someone to give you feedback, not even bad feedback, but like the blah feedback, which is like the most yeah. painful often, um, people who don't get excited about something you're excited about. How do you think about for our founders balancing when to take that feedback and say, like, maybe there isn't something here versus saying, well, this person, you know, maybe doesn't have the background or is looking at the problem differently. So, of course, they're not excited about it, even though they're an investor or whatever. How do you how do you think about filtering feedback? I have a couple of heuristics. Um, one is that I think of investors and founders as optimizing for very different types of uh, information discovery. So one thing that Brian, you and I know from advising between is almost no one has thought more about women's health, gynecological health than uh, Shereen and Asia, the founders of between. So when I hear the feedback that they get sometimes, especially from someone who has an incentive, you don't want to dismiss it out of hand. But I, I do think 
you might be going to someone like an investor for the wrong feedback when the, when the founders are really supposed to provide the depth. Like they've lived with, they've thought of the problem more than anyone else. Uh, what investors are good for and where I think it's most likely, it's most useful to take their advice is on breadth. The thing that an investor can do that a founder can't do is have essentially an index, either from their perspectives or their actual investments on the market. It could be in a specific uh, category or it could be broader in terms of funny dynamics. But if someone that's an investor, say, is giving you feedback that your idea isn't fundable in the current form, that is feedback you might not want to hear, but you might want to take it seriously because they are living and breathing this in the same way you are living and breathing your idea. And so it doesn't mean that your idea is not viable, right? But it might mean that the problem that you discover that you have conviction on isn't fundable in its current form. And there might need to be some pivots or, or changes or modifications to it. Or it could be that there's an efficiency and the funding for that idea is basically not, this time has not yet come. And we've seen that through different generations of startups. An idea that is working now wasn't fundable 10 years ago, or it was fundable and, and flamed out. So that's my kind of first, first heuristic is, know who you're asking and for what perspective that they are kind of dialed into. Love that. So sort of like a context heuristic. Exactly. Very cool. My next question is you are dealing with a lot of friction with this idea. So there's like the trust friction that you mentioned. Um, you know, if I'm, it's very different. Like we have we're a company that just popped to mind that we're advising in Tacklebox is doing. It's basically a dating app for doctors it's called White Coat Romance. And when you join the app, you literally show documentation that you are a PhD, you are an anesthesiologist, you whatever. So that's, yeah. and then they all date each other because they take the, we were talking before we jumped on about, um, I just had a kid, you, we were talking war stories from the delivery room. And those often happen at 3 a.m. And it's hard for those people to find people to, to date. So they date each other. And there's a little bit of a trust friction piece there. But right off the bat, you're sort of like, you know, if this person's doing, starting a dating for PhDs, I can kind of trust them. Mm -hmm. um, you have a trust barrier where I would say, like, you're going to take, I'm, I'm going to use you to look into my, to like sync with my bank account. Um, so there's trust friction. And then there was technical friction as well. Um, for this product, like there was, there were some serious barriers. How do you think about navigating those barriers early to validate something, to get some sort of momentum that can then help you raise money or at least for your own sanity to say like, this thing's working. Yeah. I, I bear with me on this. I get a yeah. little bit nerdy on it, but I, there's this concept from electrical engineering that I always think about, which is impedance matching. Hmm. So if you plug something into uh, a, a load, right, to get current from it, and the load is has much larger impedance and therefore can create a lot a higher um, potential difference than the, what you're charging or plugging in, you can blow it out, right? Mm. Or you can have things like signal reflection, which messes up all kinds of uh, power transmission. So there's this concept like impedance matching, which is you want your impedance to be 50% of the, the load impedance. Um, so... That didn't make sense. Bear with me. Put, put that all aside. <laughs> the idea is specifically with payments, uh, and it might apply to other things where there is this kind of like bedrock financial service uh, or, or, or cloud web services where you're running someone's actual site or app. There has to be 
this impedance matching. And I, and I see it work out in ways where the market kind of finds that equilibrium, right? So if you are an established uh, payments company, it's easier for you to show your case studies, show your volume, show your stats and earn bigger business. Um, there's no way around that. We at Balance had a cheat code and this was Y Combinator. And so I don't share this to necessarily be applicable to everyone else, but I'm trying to be honest about acknowledging where this came from. And, and there was good and bad versions of this. So we were able to overcome some of that trust barrier um, and kind of do this impedance matching by one, going to smaller customers, understanding that we can grow with them, right? It's kind of an area. So payments revenue is an area under the curve problem. And so if we got them early and young, as they grew, those companies would represent more and more payments volume, and therefore revenue for us. Hmm. That's one. We, we did that across Y Combinator and non-YC companies. But the other one is the initial five customers that we had, I believe were all YC, either batchmates or also in Y Combinator. Hmm. So it was easy to go to someone who you had dinner with once a week for the last several weeks, whose company was just starting out, who could identify with the specific phase of company building you're in and say, hey, like, we don't have it all figured out yet, but trust us, we're going to work as hard as we can to do right by you, right? There's mm. some social capital on the line there as well. Mm. Um, and so that was the initial nudge that got our momentum started. Uh, what we did then after that was doubled down on that. And we actually recruited, I think, three or four of these companies, uh, not all of them within YC, but eventually we had some that were from outside. And we asked them to write blog posts about why they were using balance. And then we asked them to write blog posts about why they're using balance, you know, specifically naming instead of Stripe or instead of Braintree, hmm. right? Why they switched from Stripe to, to balance. Hmm. And so all of those things we use to get more and more social proof, to get more and more credibility. And we could advertise those to the world to show, hey, we can handle this volume. Look at this company that's using us. We also did, uh, again, using the kind of Y Combinator connections, we would do show hacker news posts and we would show new product releases. So it was one actually just was looking up the other day was uh, here's our, you know, one curl command to initiate an ACH payment, something that didn't exist um, as far as we knew at the time. Hmm. And we could say not only are we gaining volume, stability, credibility, but we're also sprinting and pushing out new innovative features. So if we don't have something today, you can trust us that in the future, we will. And I actually think that that drumbeat of sharing and showing your momentum is underrated because, again, if you're optimizing for volume under the curve, you want people to stay with you longer. And they're more willing to do that if they see you having a high product velocity. You have more credibility when you go to them and say, hey, we don't have that today, but you know, give us your feedback. We'll spec it out and we will build it. Again, tell you exactly when. That's not the way we're going to run things, but we can, you, you can trust us that we are going to produce something that might match the, that's, this need in the future. Fantastic. Um, it reminds me of, so there's, there's sort of like a, a theory that we try and help our startups with, um, which I just call like the to-do list destroyer. And the idea is like, I would imagine, and obviously tell me if I'm wrong, but I would imagine the early days, the pre-YC days, the to-do list for you all was was pretty daunting where it's like, you need to build the product, you need to get customers, you need to get funding, you need to get like build trust somehow to do all of those things. Um, 
And then you can take something and say like, well, if we get into Y Combinator, and again, it's not right for every startup and not every startup's, you know, going to get in, of course. But if that happens, the to-do list is destroyed. Like all that stuff gets done. And instead of having to go through one by one and doing it, um, and I, I, I push all of our startups to figure that out, to like look at this big to-do list and think about it instead of looking at each piece and saying like, how can we do this one thing? Like, what is the, what is the one big thing you can mm. do to get rid of all of these tasks? Um, it sounds like YC was that for you. Um, well, one, one um, headwind or friction I'll, I'll mention though, um, so this isn't a pure advertisement for Y Combinator. Um, <laughs> so I mentioned there were positives of being in, you know, in a cohort with peers we could sell to. Uh, the flip side was there were three or four payments companies in Y Combinator around the same time that all started to do the same thing. And they, we all didn't start that way, right? So uh, in the early days, Stripe was not what Stripe is today. They did not offer this kind of double-sided product, which is now called Stripe Connect. Um, WePay was another one. They were doing more group payments, kind of more of a consumer app. We all kind of merged towards this same offering of marketplace payments or platform payments. And in addition to the Stripe's standard payments offering, uh, they, they had this Connect product, which they built specifically to compete with us. And I know this because I, I know some of the people that, that work there and, and mm. created this product. Um, and that's fine. That's, that's fair play. One of the uh, um, friction that we had was that that same referral network that was so beneficial to us started to um, be a hindrance where Stripe was clear in a way a more successful, bigger payments company of the batch. And so it was kind of assumed slash uh, recommended slash discounts were given. There were a bunch of things that just eased the path for any new YC company to start using Stripe from day one. And so now we had to start selling against that, which is why we started to market uh, with our customers why XYZ company moved from Stripe to Balance to show that we were a viable and also specific competitor within the platform payment space. Awesome. Um, in really interesting context and leads me to my next question around competition. Um, obviously, lots of our startups are starting things where there are elephants in the room of like big companies that could do this if they want to. And again, just to put you know, a, an example around it. There's a company that we're working with now that is building a specific product for a specific, and maybe my, I just have baby brain right now, but um, they're building a product for parents to, you know, buy for their babies at a certain age. And it's like, okay, well, there are some mammoth companies in the space that theoretically could build this if they saw it or if they thought of it. Um, you were building against Stripe, which probably wasn't as big as it is now, but no. still. They were, they were, were formidable. Yeah. yeah. And there were other companies in the space where I'm sure you were thinking like this company could do this if they wanted to. How do you think about that? And is it a function of um, picking a customer and saying, we're going we're gonna to serve a customer that's you know too small for them so that they can't beat us with this customer? Or is it a speed thing? Or how are you thinking about differentiating against a big in like, and in, in not a bad company, like Strip. Stripe's a great company. Um, how do you think through that? There's a couple different angles you could take. And I would, I would, especially at the beginning. So 2010, 2011, like Stripe was a very different company. They, they obviously grew rapidly over those kind of four or five years where you're competing with them. Um, but you had PayPal, you had, you know, Vantive, then WorldPay, um, F, you know, First Data, et cetera. 
the there's a couple of like structural things I would start off the kind of the list, which is I've now started to realize that uh, some of the large incumbents they actually can't do some of what more nimble I just say modern companies can. Um, so, for example, if you take a lot of the large merchant acquirers in the country, they grow often through acquisition. Every time they acquire a business, they actually entrench a lot of their systems and siloing of data, and they make the integration problem a lot more difficult for anyone who's going to come and use their their features new. So, yes, they might have X, Y, and Z uh, products or features or offerings, but accessing them is not nearly as easy as going with a more modern player. And so at Balance, we would always point that out via someone like PayPal, right? So they had their mass pay product. They also had their, you know, standard PayPal wallet. They had their Braintree solution eventually. And so, you know, we could go through the documentation, which is publicly listed and say, these are actually three different integration points with Balance. It's a single API that gets you everything, right? And so there was like a structural thing that we could always use in marketing and positioning or even just in product demos to, to distinguish ourselves. Um, and then in terms of looking for opportunities within someone, say, uh, Stripe, who is a bit more nimble, um, it's sometimes showing the, the level of focus that you have. So by definition, Stripe had multiple products. They did a pretty good job of offering them via a single API, but their incentives were different. Right. So especially in the beginning, when they rolled out Stripe Connect, the product wasn't set up so that it was fully white labeled. You had to have your submerchants get a Stripe account, which was useful for many, many use cases. But it wasn't what we were hearing from our you know 10,000 mm. hours of talking to founders mm. um, about, hey, we want a white label product. We want a marketplace like Airbnb and Uber where no one has to know if it's Wells Fargo, Chase, um, you know, Bank of America in the background. And so... Stripe eventually did work in that direction um, and started competing with us much more directly. But it was, so it wasn't like a structural barrier, but they had an incentive that pointed them at, hey, let's get people building platforms or marketplaces to help us sign up more Stripe merchants. That's in our best interest. That moves our, our bottom line. Um, and so it was, it was working in that space. And again, we can, we use that to our advantage to get some customers on board in the earlier days that eventually grew to be, you know, some of mm. our top 10 customers. And so it's looking for those gaps uh, in the market, in the offerings, in the positioning even uh, that you can attack and, and gain scale initially. But, you, so you but have the a, problem is you always have to keep finding those because sometimes those gaps are closed. Yeah. And that's good. I think we'll talk about that when we get to growth. I think there are some tactics or particularly in the content marketing growth space. That- exactly tactics spoil fast um but that i love that like so thinking so you had a there's a quote which i'll butcher but it's basically like you have to know your enemy better or you know know you know your enemy's perspective better than you know your own or you know i'll i'll figure out what that quote actually is (laughs) um but the idea being that you understood their incentives and that allowed you to understand their most logical growth pattern and like the way that their product would go. Yeah. And to have some humility, like I don't, their incentives may have been different, um, but I had a plausible understanding of why they were doing what they were doing. Um, mm-hmm. And then again, going back to the very first, like pound pay preceded balanced. 
PoundPay was much more of the money movement app, P2P. We were using, we were probably one of the first hundred customers to try out Stripe, which was then called Dev slash Payments. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we tried to use PayPal. Those products not being up to the standard gave us the insight to build Balance, which was the peer to, you know, the, the payments platform for marketplaces, the, the infrastructure, the API. Um, and so we had cataloged all the things that didn't work for us. So we knew the problems intimately. Hmm. So you just had an exhaustive level of understanding. It was a, for... it was a first level of degree of understanding of the, the yeah. gaps. And again, those gaps changed over time. Yeah. Very cool. So that, that kind of leads to my next question about, you mentioned sort of early on this North Star vision, like the, the eventual like frictionless payment stuff being potentially something that you were building towards longer term. How do you balance in general, not, not necessarily just in that scenario, but I think there's a, particularly with businesses, startups that are selling B2B and B2C too, but it feels a little bit more like a B2B thing where you start doing something, you start selling to people and maybe they don't want the thing that you're selling, but they want something else. Yeah. And when is the right time to be opportunistic and say like, okay, great. You didn't, you don't want payments, but you want X. Let me do that for you. Um, versus saying like, that's not the right path to the North star. And that is not going to move us forward. Like when is, when is momentum good or bad? It is, that's tough because I, I also don't know if I have a great, um, I don't know if I've nailed this. I I've seen this a number of times and I think the dynamics are always there almost, uh, especially if you're doing something as deep as infrastructure, like payments. Um, but I, I don't know the art, I think to building a good B2B company is if you look out and you see companies like Salesforce, AWS, uh, my, one of my favorite artifacts of this is actually the AWS status page. If anyone has a chance to go find this, it is one of the longest lists of green bars. And so they have a status indicator for uptime and availability for every single uh, kind of discrete product. You know, it could be EC2, it could be S3 and on and on and on and on. Um, to me, that's an artifact of how they took their initial couple product offerings, use it as a wedge, and then started expanding into existing customers. Salesforce mm-hmm. is the same thing. They buy customers, they sell them into this channel. Um, in some ways, that is the like final form of these enterprise BB customers. The problem is, I believe, especially in the last couple of years, we've seen a number of smaller companies who have not yet mastered or, or figured out their initial entry point, try to accelerate and go to the next one. Mm. And the reason I'm kind of hesitating here is that I don't know in all cases uh, when it's right to keep your head down and say, hey, we're not done here yet versus go to the next round and, and try to do two in parallel. There's a risk that you spread yourself too thin. There's a risk that you uh, give up some of the product velocity on the initial offering that actually compromises getting those early customers. Um, but sometimes you can make up for it by the new offering, or sometimes you can cre- uh, increase retention. Uh, so you, maybe you're getting fewer activations, but you're increasing retention with a, with a new offering. It's There is a, an, a formula or an algorithm for each company, but it's it's far too context specific to me to give blanket advice. But I think that's how I think about it is how, how can you pursue that without seriously diminishing any of these kind of points along the funnel at, e- at each step? Mm. Yeah, it's, it's, it was an impossible question to answer, but I love that answer. And it makes me think about 
So we have a lot of fans. I'm curious your thoughts on this because we'll have a lot of people who will come um, either to Tacklebox or just reach out from the podcast and say, hey, I've got this idea. It's technical. Um, I'm not technical, but I understand the market a little bit. Um, I'm going to raise a little friends and family money or raise money from somewhere. And, And I always use the term friends and family loosely. It's just anyone who can write you a check. And we're going to get a dev shop to build this product. And um, it always worries me when when you hear stories about like that path that you had. And there's no way you would have been able to do that if you were constantly outsourcing work to a dev shop. Like it's the the iterations for the product were so technically driven. And I I am interested in getting into some of the marketing tests that you were talking about, because I think those will be more relevant to folks who are particular like possibly working on stuff that's maybe they're not technical on the team um what are your thoughts on jumping into a space where the product is where you're competing against these places with you know huge engineering teams as a non-technical founder i don't want to i don't want to turn my nose up at sure like hiring a dev shop i think it's to your point though like i have a, a good friend who just sold his company um and it was more on the consumer side, so there wasn't the same kind of technical product discovery or understanding of problems that was needed. But um, the, the, I mean, they use a dev shop outsource for the first, I think, several months, if not years, of, of business, and that got mm-hmm. them off the ground. So, like, it's, it's definitely doable. But you're right. For like, we used the APIs of you know what became our competitors initially. We reverse engineered the mobile apps of banks. We understood what tools were available to someone who would be in our shoes trying to build a peer-to-peer payments app pretty deeply. There's just no way we could have gotten that if we had outsourced that development. Um, But again, I take for granted the fact that I happened to study electrical engineering. My co-founders happened to study computer science and obviously that led us to a technical field. Um, But I, I know founders who have insights in domains that are fairly technical and, and and they don't come from an engineering background. I actually think sometimes that's really useful. So that preamble aside, I give, I think you've heard me give this advice. Like I always recommend people who are worried about uh, gaining technical skills or finding a technical co-founder to just start. And it, my, my advice isn't that you should become the world's best engineer and become a CTO, but it's a couple things. I think these are useful for navigating these technical problems too you will gain a better understanding of what engineers do, which makes you more e- like able to work with them, make reasonable demands, overcome pushback, and empathize with uh, estimates they might give you. Second thing is you will gain respect from engineers, which as frustrating as it might be, I've had experiences where I was working on, on the BD team at Pinterest and I found myself doing implementations engineering just because I needed customers to go live on our commerce platform and I had some technical skills. And I was asking one of the engineers for a script that he wrote and he basically refused to give it to me until he happened to find out that I have an engineering degree. And he's like, oh, here you go. <laughs> and so nothing changed about my proficiency that he knew of, but he just felt more comfortable that I had a degree in engineering. So if you studied engineering or, or computer science or programming and other people can see evidence of this um, they are often more likely to 
work with you, give you patience as you're working with them. And then third, especially, especially if you're looking for engineers or a, a technical co-founder is actually going through and being in the places like Stack Overflow or finding a mentor, things like that. Um, but being in the places where engineers and technical people live, you're more likely to find someone that you could hire or work with. And so all of those things increase the likelihood of success, even if you are ultimately outsourcing uh, your product development, I should say. Yeah, I, I love that. I, a quick follow-up question, which you might not have an answer to since you're sort of removed from this, but um, you know, this will be releasing in early 2023. And a lot of people have New Year's resolutions. So like if the resolution of somebody was, and we do get a lot of people like this, or they're like, I don't have the idea yet. I want to start something. I want to prepare myself best for it. If they decided that some fluency in, in, in some you know, bits of engineering was a good path, what would you recommend? That is hard. I have, I, my, my path in software development was weird. I started doing assembly and machine code uh, as part of my EE degree. Mm-hmm. And then I learned PHP um, and then Python. I would say Python is probably the thing I would recommend. And there's a ton of online uh, kind of courses that are self, self-guided. So at a high level, I would start there. I think Python's a pretty good programming language. It has tons of libraries and frameworks that you can do almost anything with. Cool. Very cool. Um, okay. Two more questions on this, um, on sort of that experience. Um, well, I guess one a little bit broader to start. So how do you think about the first customer? So, so I think there's, I'm like, you got me on heuristics and I'm thinking about them. And I think one of the ones that you've mentioned now a couple of times is around the value of sort of like, and there's a book that just came out by Stephen Pressfield. I'm Baby brains really get me. I'm going to butcher the title of the book, but I'll put it in the show notes. Um, it's like, put your put your butt where your heart is or something like that. And the idea is to be, be in the place where the stuff that you want is happening. So like you're thinking of like, if, if you're in the place where engineers are and you're constantly you know interacting with them, you're going to find someone to work with. And you know, this guy's basic advice, I think it's a short book, but I can probably, you know, it's a sentence, which is like, if you want to be a writer move and write movies, move to LA if you want to. Mm. And, and I think there's value to it. Um, so kind of thinking around what these like heuristics of your first customer. So if you are trying to get this first customer, you're B- selling B2B or even B2C, um, what do you recommend for building some sort of trust or is this like, should you offer for free your first product or is it important to try and charge something so you know what it's worth? Like that first customer is, is so hard and so daunting and delivering value to them is daunting. How, how did you think about that or how do you advise? Yeah, I, I have a story from my time at Till, uh, which was the crowdfunding platform that was acquired by Airbnb. Um, so it's not exactly the first customer, but I do think it is instructive. So I worked on Tilt Pro, which was the B2B kind of white labeled version of Tilt's consumer app. Mm-hmm. And so it was, it was, I wouldn't call it a side product. It was, it had pretty good volume, um, but it wasn't getting the full growth focus and treatment um, as the core app was. So I was, I was hired to lead growth for that product. And I had this exact kind of cold start problem. We were getting a lot of referrals from our network. And 
it, but it, it wasn't repeatable. And so I ran some experiments in the beginning. So one of the first things I did was try to hire um, like a lead gen agency. There's companies you can hire that basically you give them heuristics, they go out to the muscle and the leg work and they bring back a list of leads. Um, and through that process, I iterated with them and we eventually started to profile all of the successful uh, crowdfunding slash pre-order projects on Indiegogo and Kickstarter. Because our idea of TAM expansion was, why are they using Tilt? Why are they using Tilt Pro? And so how do we get them? So uh, doing that, we realized that, the, and talking to our existing customers, we realized that there was a through line through all of these customers. Um, well, first of all, it proved that the lead agency was just too expensive. It wasn't going to scale. The numbers didn't work out uh, in terms of CAC versus LTV. Um, but the second thing it showed is that this through line was every single successful campaign, whether it was on Tilt Pro, Indiegogo, or Kickstarter, they researched pretty extensively the campaigns that came before them because they were trying to learn what led to success as well. And so my insight was there's no place for them to go other than these platforms. Why don't I create that space myself? Hmm. And so this is a marketing effort with the kind of foundational understanding of provide value first, then ask. So I created a newsletter from scratch called The Prototype. And it was a weekly profile and review of all the big pre-order consumer product campaigns. Uh, it could be on Tilt, it could be on Indiegogo, it could be on Kickstarter, it could be elsewhere. I would review them, write some snarky, kind of developed a nice tone and voice for it, um, put a bunch of links in and kind of bootstrapped the newsletter uh, receipt list from some of the uh, campaigns that we were already servicing. And then I just watched the numbers and tweak. And, and, and eventually I, I hired a ghostwriter. And then I scaled it up where I had to spend you know, three hours a week on it. And it was our main marketing channel that would lead to uh, surfacing new campaigns that were looking for research. We would say, hey, why don't you use Tilt Pro? Right? Tilt hmm. Pro became the... Uh, uh, the sponsor for the newsletter. So wow. this was a way that I um, tried to create that space. It wasn't physical, it was online. Uh, I used early signals such as um, bounce rate, or not bounce rate, the open rates, click-through rates, et cetera, to calibrate, is this even something that is needed, wanted, useful? Um, got, I got further insight when people would email, uh, say if I missed a week or something like that, uh, while I was setting up the ghostwriter. They said, hey, what, I didn't, you know, I didn't get it this week. What, what happened? So that allowed me to gain more conviction, eventually scale it up to the point where I was actually dedicating resources to it, being this ghostwriter. Um, and that allowed us to, to scale it up and, and became our, our marketing channel. Incredible. I love that. Um, really interesting. I think that's, a, that's an approach that's portable for... It is different you know if you if you were starting from scratch and you had no infrastructure behind you you could have done that um one quick question because i as someone who like writes and does a lot of this stuff you said ghostwriter and i almost threw up um of just like i can't imagine doing that i'm and that kind of gets me to a question of delegation or when when is it time to productize something or hand it off and um, how do you think about that? And then I, I do kind of want to get back to some of this content stuff because yeah. I think it's, it's, I know it's something you advise on and really useful um, and relevant. But when do you think about delegating? Like, when do you think that it's time and it's okay to have a ghostwriter do something that you clearly had, you know, done well? Um, 
mean, I imagine they didn't do as well as you did. So I, I, I've had mixed. My general uh, view is I, I tend to hire individual freelancers versus agencies. Hmm. I there's kind of two understandings that, that lead me to that opinion. So one, I set expectations up front. You know, things can be like a freelancer or an agency or a consultant. I will try to optimize and use for what they're good for, which is like short term, like, and I don't know how to say it, but like basically I can fire you, right? Mm -hmm. I don't know how to say it more delicately, but like if this doesn't work out, if this is not the tone, the delivery schedule, et cetera, the quality that I want, it's not going to be a long-term engagement and that's set up front. So with that understanding that this is a two-door or, you know, a two-way decision, I can go back through the door. Um, I try to move quickly and say, okay, I like this person's tone. They're able to, with the writing samples, uh, show that they can mimic some of what I want. And then I, I go with that. Uh, agencies, I find you get less of a unique voice. You get more incentives towards kind of lowest common denominator. And there's more setup. You have yeah. usually minimums, retainers, and then wind down periods. So those things lead me to do the individual. Um, specifically for content writing. Um, the other thing is I am actually a very tough editor. I cringe if something is going out under my name that doesn't sound like me. Mm -hmm. uh, but I have had to, over the course of a balance, tilt, uh, and now at Phoenix, let that go. Sometimes there's value, and this might transition to a little bit of the content theories that I have. Sometimes there's value in having things out that aren't the most compelling long form magazine essay prose you've ever read, but are useful in getting keywords out for relevant search terms that you want to cover. Mm -hmm. So that's how I think about it generally. I love it. And, and yeah, let's dig in on that. So tell me about your, um, you know, maybe pretend that I have a startup that I'm early on and I'm trying to build some sort of presence. Um, we can make, Ooh, I just had, I had an idea this morning. I usually have ideas based on the name of the company, not so much as yeah, what yeah. they do. So um, I was looking for like a vegan soup uh, that would be good. And I was like, I like cashew based like butternut squash soup. So the idea was uh, nuts to soup and it's all cashew based soup. So let's say that I'm starting nuts to soup and I wanted to start like a content strategy around that to start getting when people search for vegan soups they land on my business how would you think through that or do you have heuristics for that or yeah yeah um it depends so there's a couple of things one would be kind of search and discovery phase i would think about the initial ones mm -hmm. and then this next one would be scaling up much more of like the domain authority so hey, this is something we have high conviction in from talking to customers maybe we built a product that's getting some usage and now we want to start laying the foundation for our demand gen so starting in the search and discovery, um, I've found value in finding communities. So like at, at Tilt Pro, I mentioned I created my own newsletter. But uh, at Balance, when I was trying to find uh, marketplace founders, I would go to Quora, Stack Overflow, Facebook groups, uh, et cetera, et cetera, and basically find conversations that were going on about marketplace dynamics. And I would provide content. It was a little bit promotional, which I had to uh, be careful with. And one way to, uh, again, going back to this phrase of like, first provide value, then ask is 
you know, be involved in the, in the conversations. Don't just go there and only post, hey, look at my new uh, essay or blog post or whatever it is. But writing a, an essay that kind of outlines your like thesis on why vegan nut-based soups are a healthier, more convenient, better for the planet alternative. Uh, like that, that takes some time, but it's limited and you can go and get some feedback based on who reads it, who responds, et cetera. Right. Um, and so I think of that as one of the lowest, uh, low lightweight ways to go and and test an idea. Hmm. So after, or, you know, setting up the newsletter, I was able to look at the metrics like conversion rates and click through rates and stuff like that. So from there, you would have an idea of the keywords that you might want to start to focus on for doing, you know, uh, more organic domain authority building. Hmm. And the reason the domain authority is important is that it's not only good for free ways to find traffic. Like if your blog post that is now hosted on your website that has a good domain specific to the keywords you want to target, if that's showing up on Google, that's free traffic. But also if you start running ads on that same you know, website, your conversion rates um, and your costs will be lower. Your mm. conversion rates higher and costs will be lower if you have a high domain authority. Mm. So getting the SEO and content piece right early is usually what I advise startups. Mm. So transitioning from the discovery phase into the scaling phase, I think then it's about doing a bit of research. There's tools like SEMrush where you can figure out um, keywords that your domain and content do well on as well as do a little bit of competitive research. And from there, you can start building more and more posts that, you know, you can put out into the world, either in these communities, or you can ask people who come to your site to sign up for your newsletter, send out these new posts and start asking for uh, feedback there. And or I'll just look at the conversion rates, how many people read it, how many people visit, how many people sign up for your newsletter. And I like to do this, or I advise companies to do this also while they're building the product, because it's something that you can pretty easily parallel track, right? Mm-hmm. So you're building up your content corpus while you're doing some of your product development, getting your facilities, getting your packaging, all of that figured out. And then by the time you're ready to launch your product, you've hopefully built up a little bit of an audience. Also, if you just start building your domain authority as you're ready to launch a product, it's sometimes too late. It takes six mm-hmm. to 12 months to build up that domain authority. Hmm. So I, I usually recommend folks like after the initial product and market discovery, start building content because it's useful in rapid calibration and it's useful to build that domain authority for the long term. Mm. And it sounds like it's something that you can, after you get a sense for the channels and the type of posts that you want to write, you can outsource it. Yes. Very cool. I love that. Well, I think I, it I should be clear. I recommend outsourcing a lot of the like keyword coverage based on the tone and voice of some early pieces. I do think it's important not to uh, devolve into just like run-of-the-mill uh, marketing speak. I think there's kind of a uh, more of a bland tone that exists in a lot of marketing blogs. Mm-hmm. And those are useful for volume and scale. But I really do think like distilling your vision and your market insights early in, in some posts that's useful one to get calibration uh, to kind of like spread spread the gospel but also those are the posts that can be used to inspire the tone and voice and concepts mm-hmm. for l- later coverage 
Very cool. I love that. So like the keystone posts. Exactly. Exactly. Very cool. Um, awesome. Let's wrap this up with a couple of more general questions for founders. A lot of what we've just sort of glossed over as you've talked through all the stuff that you've been doing is like the mental side of it, of like, this is all risky stuff. You have, um, you know, your, your opportunity cost is high. Like you could at any point when you were doing startup stuff, you could have gone and taken a really high paying job somewhere with your skill set and ability. Um, how do you think about managing all of that? Like, how do you think about opportunity cost and think about, you know, when something's worth going all in on and putting, you know, potential, you know, pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, mm. all of that. Uh, it depends on my general advice. And this is advice I've tried to take is I try to do riskier things earlier, hmm. um, in, in big and small ways. But the big way for me is that I, my first job out of college, I moved to Ghana and helped start a technology entrepreneurship school. Wow. That is something that I had the intuition at the time I wasn't going to do when I was say 38 and had a wife and a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, and now being 38 with a wife and a kid, there's just no way I would uproot my life right now and, and move to, to West Africa like that. Um, and then on the small side, um, you know, like the newsletter, um, we, we definitely use some gray hat tactics to, to borrow um, newsletter, like subscriber lists in the early days. And, and my idea was people might opt out they might ask to unsubscribe, they might yell at me, but but the risk was quantifiable and it didn't seem um, so bad. And then if there was really, really negative signal, then I could just stop. Hmm. Right? There, was, there was no expectation of it continuing. It was an experiment. And on the positive side, the results were so good that I kept going and, and you know, modify some things around the edges based on the feedback. But uh, I did probably one of the riskier things of trying to figure out how to rapidly scale up our subscriber list so I could get a signal. I did that early on. And then after that, it was less risky things like hiring the ghostwriter and trying to scale it up. Mm. Um, and so that's partially my mentality for risk. Um, the other the other ideas I have around risk are really, it, for me, it's around anxiety. <laughs> I have suffered from anxiety more than, it, like it, if something hits one of my core like issues from my childhood, my anxiety will spike. Other times when of like, you know, hey, your company's going to run out of money. And if it's something I've thought through and felt relatively comfortable with the risk I'm taking, I, it just does not faze me at all. So mm-hmm. I focus more of my energy on things like therapy, a strong relationship with my wife, um, making sure I'm present for my daughter, exercise, um, things like that, so that I can show up at work and handle risky situations and a high-paced environment well. That's super interesting because I think I've I've realized the same thing or something similar about myself in that there are all things there are a bunch of things that people assume will create anxiety with everyone and they don't necessarily do that. And it's taken me time to understand what does create anxiety for me and what reduces that anxiety for me. And I think there are some things like for the podcast, when I'm writing the episodes and the solo episodes, 
like people are like, well, it will be less anxious for you if you don't do it every week. And I can't do that. Like I can't, yeah. I, the way that I get less anxious about something is just about the podcast is spending 20 hours on it and there's no way around it. So that's like what it's going to be. Um, yeah. But there are other things that I think, you know, are supposed to be risky for me that aren't. And then something like exercise will sort of mitigate those things. And then understanding like where you, where the, where the slack is in the rope, I guess. Yeah. Um, See, exercise and sleep are like the baseline. Like if, if I get that, I can, I'm just more resilient and more robust. Um, but I'm at the point now where it's like, if I think I'm facing financial ruin, that, that impacts the story I tell myself about how I am a provider and, and take care of my family. And so that's, that can be something that gives me anxiety. But to reduce that, I don't tend to, at this point in my career, like put all of my chips in one basket where like if, you know, a startup I'm working at fails like that, that I face financial ruin. So, but at the same time, now that I'm at this point where the main thing I care about and like that can really shake me is, is the, the family stuff. If you tell me that my startup is going to run out of money, it like I'm, I've seen that story so many times now and face that scenario and I'm like, okay, like here's what we need to do to solve that. Like I don't, that does not cause me anxiety anymore. Cool. Super interesting. Kind of a combination of context and knowing yourself and very cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then, you know, different priorities as you get older. Um, I love that idea of risk early. I think that is so, because it's very counterintuitive to how humans tend to operate. Like even like you get into a lake, like you start by dipping your toe in like that sort of thing. I think that's how everyone thinks everything is. Yeah. And, and I think in non-startup life, I think that makes a lot of sense. But like, do you watch that show alone ever? Have you ever heard of it? No, I haven't, I haven't seen it. No. It basically, they put a bunch of people in a really tough place to live by themselves and they have a video camera and they try and survive. Yeah. And it's really funny about who serve, who makes it long, like is able to survive longer. And I think it's all the people who do the riskier stuff first. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the people who try and build these impenetrable cabins right off the bat, which, cause it seems like it's something that's not risky, but then you use all your calories on that. And exactly. Then you're, then you're starved and eight days in you're done. Whereas exactly. like, the one guy I'm watching a season now who's first thing he did was like, he, he's like, I'm going to either fail or, or succeed if I have a boat. So I'm going to make a boat. And if it sinks, like I'm done, but if it works, I'm going to be here for 200 days. Yeah. And he built a boat and he's still there. Um, anyway, cool. Super interesting. So I guess my last question for you for this part is the billboard question, which is a hard one. Mm. Um, you advise a ton of startups. You've obviously, you know, there are a few people who have this type of perspective. If you had a, were able to, to create a billboard that every early stage startup had to pass on their way to work every day, what would you put on it? What's the enduring lesson or reminder? It's some of the two things that come to mind are related to these, the kind of this last part of the conversation, which is as my journey as an entrepreneur, the two things I've really internalized is that, um, Mental, the managing my mental health is like where the alpha comes from, mm -hmm. right? Like I've talked about this concept uh, on a previous a podcast about like floors versus ceilings, which is mm -hmm. I needed to use some of my chip on the shoulder, insecurity, like anxieties in the early days 
kind of get the education I had to, you know, prove people wrong, et cetera. And I think that was very, very useful to get to a certain point where, you know, financially or experience wise, I don't, I don't have to worry a ton about things like the floor falling out. Right. Yeah. Uh, and that wasn't always the case for me. But now I'm realizing that my upside is almost entirely based on how mentally healthy I am, how resilient I can be, um, how I confront difficult conversations, um, things like that. So that's why a lot of my time over the last 10, eight years has been spent on mental health, other, other priorities, which my family, for example, gives me a lot of fulfillment and meaning that helps me very easily sort my work priorities and also kind of aims me at um, the things in my life I want to do because like my foundation is secure. And so that's what I, I think about this concept of floors versus ceilings as, as, as one, I don't know how to turn that into a pithy statement, but that's like the, <laughs> some of the advice. And then I don't know how specific this is to what I've done in my career, which is mostly, you know, payments infrastructure and, but FinTech generally, I heard this, from another uh another fintech founder he basically thinks that for every fintech product there's a seven-year cycle and it can mm. be infrastructure it could be consumer trend etc it could be adoption or proliferation of a, of a payment method but i found that to be true which is if you are able to and willing to for lack of a better term just stick it out almost no matter what like Good things can happen as long as some of the foundational things, like it's a product someone wants and you're still providing value despite all the changing market conditions. Uh, if, you're, if you can stick it out, I'll, oftentimes good things will happen. Hmm. And so I think about this with balance where at one point my founders and I, or co-founders and I decided that we, we you know, Finic, or sorry, balance could run from the revenue it was generating, but there wasn't the type of big swing business that we wanted to, to go for. But in hindsight, especially now with working at Phoenix, which is very, very similar and in some ways like inspired by what, what Balance created, now at Phoenix, I see how big the real opportunity is. And if we had just stayed in the game at Balanced, we'd be chasing that big prize. We would, we would have survived long enough to get some of the foundation right, to have funding come around, to grow our revenue even more, that we could have scaled up mm. um, to be you know, a multi, multi-billion dollar company. Uh, there's a there's actually a public company now that's been running for about 20 years where they were running it for like about 15 of it very much you know some people might call it a lifestyle business there's technology and there was a famous company but uh, only in the last five years have they really like capitalized and financed in a way to chase this big vision but just the founder staying in the game and being young he started the company when he was 16 allowed him to do that and so um i don't know if that's generally a applicable device but i have found benefit when folks are like just so consumed by a product a market or a, a vision for a company that they just pursue it for 10 years on the same time you can see people spin their wheels and so the art is knowing when to, to give up and when not to and maybe the first advice i get gave about focusing on your mental health will help you figure out if you're chasing something out of just pure stubbornness and doggedness versus you're really pursuing a, a real opportunity. I love it. And that's what I was thinking. I was like, these two are absolutely related where it's yeah. like understanding what your floor is will allow you to 
stay in the game, like stay, yeah, that's true. stay involved in something like that for a long time. Um, it's so funny how that works. Like, you know, I, I love businesses like, like Calendly or something where they're, they ask the founder, like, when are you going to expand from helping people, you know, schedule meetings? And he says something like, like we could do this for the next 30 years. Like there's so much nuance yeah. in this specific kernel. And, um, those seem to be the people who become harder to compete with because you build a level of context that no one else is going to have in that, like in that moment in time. Um, brilliant. I love this. This was great. Thank you so much. Um, this is, yeah, we hit, we hit a bunch of the questions I had. Um, I, I think the, the models that you use to think seem to be probably stem from the engineering background, but they're so applicable. Like I, I think this was, this will be wonderful for our, for our founders. So thank you so much. That was a lot of fun. Thank you. This was the Idea to Startup podcast brought to you by Tacklebox. If you've got a startup idea and a full-time job, head to gettacklebox.com and apply. We can be working on your idea in 72 hours. And if you made it this far and you like the pod, please leave us a five-star rating and a review on iTunes. It helps a ton. Have a great week.